Dr. Mark Shembury is a 2009 John Monash Scholar. He is a leading educator, academic and practitioner in both human and animal medicine. Mark is a practicing doctor in women's health at Royal North Shore Hospital and a veterinarian with the Australian Turf Club. Among his many degrees, Mark has a Master in Public Health, Infectious Disease, Epidemiology from Harvard. He's lived and worked overseas. He's also a board member of Sydney University Rugby Club. He's the Vice President of the Royal Agricultural Society of New South Wales and is Chairman of the National Selection Panel for the Sir John Monash Foundation Scholarship. He was also a vet for the Australian equine team at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Professor Shembury is a passionate advocate for education, having lectured for over a decade at the University School of Vet Science. I'm very pleased to say that Mark Shembury joins me on the program today. G'day, Mark. Well, a pleasure to be here and uh, I look forward to talking over the, the next uh, bit of time. Yeah, great to be with you. So am I right in saying that you've got a stethoscope in, in both hands, both humans and animals? Absolutely. And because I'm so keen on never compromising on infectious diseases, I make sure that the stethoscope I use on the horses uh, don't end, doesn't end up in the human hospital. <laughs> so how does that, how does that work? You're, you're a vet and a doctor. I'm, I'm keen to know how all of that came about. Well, we, we talk about a multidisciplinary approach to medicine. And because of the recent COVID pandemic and, you know, my experience in veterinary science where we've been working with pandemics over many, many years, the best approach to medicine is learning from all the different specialties and also all the different species. But how that came approach was I was very keen on horses as a child, always wanted to be an equine veterinarian. I followed that dream and spent 14 years in practice. Um, I was so fortunate to get involved in what I call the, the elite institutions which involve animals. And when I mean elite, I, I don't mean elitist, I mean institutions that call people to be their best. So the Sydney Royal Easter Show. I mean, nothing beats the, the show. When I love it, the show. Love the show. Australians love the show uh, from all walks of life, you know, kids to grandparents and everything in between. It is a highlight of Easter in the city of Sydney. We're seeing the country folk come. And the animals there, again, when we talk, when I use that word elite, are the best of their breeds. People mm. have been getting the genetics um, and these animals ready for the show and likewise, on the other hand, I, I love my racing. I love being part of the animal welfare aspect of racing, um, mm. seeing seeing the investment made by so many people, uh, you know, in life in the horse racing industry. And if I can put it this way, there are the people that train the horses, the people that own the horses, but there are the people that their their recreation is is going to the races or, or, or betting on a Saturday, and it keeps these people happy in life. Or mm. the people that are making the dresses. Uh, or the top hats for the, the autumn and spring carnival, the people supplying the food, the beverages. It's a huge industry, and we talk about it as being one of the, the top five industries in the state the of New South of Wales, the sport of kings. And, and I love the, the medical side, trying to assist horses to be their best, um, dealing with horses when they break down that emergency response. And that's where it all began. But in about 2009, um, the Royal Easter Show uh, was getting concerned about biosecurity as it was becoming more topical. 
things like foot and mouth disease outbreak in the United Kingdom, um, the the the, um, the increase in prevalence of hendrovirus in horses yes. and, and, and death of humans. And so this is where I approached the General Sir John Monash Scholarship um, and applied for a scholarship to go over to Harvard University, which I, I consider the best in the world when it comes to um, uh, public health and inf- infectious disease yes. outbreaks. Mm. Um, and and they, the General Sir John Monash Scholarship, uh, I'm indebted for life to them because they have supported me uh, in giving me a scholarship and I would have never have been able to get there otherwise. And that's where I uh, obtained the, the, the skills to deal with an emergency disease outbreak um, to prevent outbreaks, to, to deal with them when they occur and to become very vocal on biosecurity at the Sydney Royal Easter Show. And when I headed over to human medicine, I now got to wear another hat, which was no longer just outbreak of disease amongst animals, but now outbreak of disease from animal to human, human to animal, mm. And, mm. and within the species. And I, I made that jump to human medicine because I wanted to be um, competent in all areas of, of public health. Um, and I've, I've never looked back and regretted that decision. Interestingly, when I got to human medicine, though, um, my other specialty in, in veterinary medicine was the obstetrics and gynecology side of horses. So I, I followed that in humans. So I sort of fall under two umbrellas. I there are a few jokes uh, you've heard. Time, Mark. All, all the time, you know, when I'm when I'm collect when I'm uh, delivering the baby, it's in in humans, it's head first. In animals, it's it's front feet first. So so I, I just I just make sure it's coming out with the right uh, you know, right limbs, depending or lack of limbs, depending on the species. Are there are there many people, Mark, who do what you do, where they're experts in human medicine, but also in veterinary science? There's definitely not many of us. I know of a few, um, but I don't know of any that have ended up in obstetrics. I, I know of someone who ended up in ophthalmology, another in psychiatry, and another in um, uh, enos and throat surgery. But but it's not the norm, as you can imagine. You do. I did seven years studying to get my veterinary degree. Um, got other degrees on top of that, and then you know was uh, was willing <laughs> to go and do another four years postgraduate medicine at the University of Sydney. But um, it's not the norm. As a medical practitioner, are there any similarities or things that you've learnt as a vet that you can translate into the human world? Animal physiology from you know is very is very similar when we talk about human uh, physiology so that was very helpful in giving me a, a, you know, a head start mm. but but the big difference and I'm stating the obvious but it's still entertaining to talk about is animal medicine is very much based on relying on owners to give you the symptoms observing the animal as a whole and trying to work out whether they do look sick and that is much harder than human medicine where you know, mm. they tell you what's you can wrong. have a conversation. Yeah. So I think that one of the skills that I really mastered was um, looking at the human as if they were an animal and trying to really get, you know, gauge how sick they are because that was a skill I picked up as a vet. I'm trying mm. to read the animal. And I, I think when, when a, you know, a person enters the, the clinic or, or, the, or the examination room, I'm watching them the moment they're, they're walking, whether they're lame, you know, they've got a limp as they're walking to into, the, into the room, whether they look sad. I'm much more receptive to that than I think I would have been had I not done veterinary science. So when you went to Harvard, I'm keen to know about your experience living and, and studying in the US. Paint us a picture of what that was like. Yeah. So I've gone to a school of public health, which is 99% human doctors. 
And so it was quite novel having a veterinary scientist among them, amongst them. But I was very open as to why I was there, and that was I wanted to learn how infectious disease outbreaks were dealt with in human medicine and to translate that across to animal medicine. So I was made very welcome in the School of Public Health. Um, I did some research over there, which they were very supportive of, even though it involved a goat disease. They, the, the, the approach was the same. Um, I, I was also the veterinarian for the Harvard um, horse polo team. I really enjoyed traveling with, uh, with the team around uh, Boston uh, or around Massachusetts, I should say, and again, using my veterinary skills. You would have probably found a few rich listers over there. <laughs> um, best I don't comment, but yep, that's, yes. that's how it works over there. And, and, you know, living in the great city of Boston, very, very mm. social, a wonderful place to, to live, very cold, of course, but I would say that was probably the happiest uh, before I met my wife, of course, the happiest in my yes. happiest time in my life. So how um how do you spend your week? There's probably no such thing as a an ordinary week in your life, but how do you split it all up and and try to make it all work? So the thing about medicine is that it involves a lot of nighttime work, weekend work, and of course normal weekday work. And because you're on that shift work, you get a lot more time off from uh, uh, to do other things. So okay. I can work at the races perhaps on a Wednesday midweek as well as a Saturday if I'm not working those days at, at the hospital. And likewise, if I do a set of nights, seven days on straight, 8 p.m. till 8 a.m., I'll get five or six days off after that. And that's where I get to work at the University of Sydney, at the races, at the Easter show. And so I'm able to juggle around a lot more than other people who work the 40, you know, 38 hour week, Monday to Friday. Um, and so I'm a, I'm a supporter of shift work because it allows me to do a lot more. And that also includes, you know, heading to the rugby on a Saturday to watch Sydney Uni play in the shoot shield. Uh, and, and then, of course, seeing the wife and the kids. It's, it's a big juggling act, but I think that's where I've become very efficient. Um, I'm a big believer in answering my phone as soon as possible so that work doesn't build up, returning emails as soon as possible and trying to answer everything in an email so I'm not hit back with 101 questions in the reply. So when you go to the races, are you the, are you the vet that is normally loitering at the back of the barriers? Yeah, so there's there's three vets on uh, at the racetrack in Sydney and on we course. rotate yep. between – on course, that's right – rotate between um, the vet at the, the barriers. Now, that's, that is – probably one of the most stressful jobs I do because you need to make a decision on the spot whether a horse mm-hmm. should race. So if a horse is in the barriers, it hits, it, it you know, mucks up, it, it hits its head, it kicks out, injures its leg. You know, sometimes it's very clear to scratch a horse at the barriers. You know, yes. There's a risk not just to the horse in the race, but if the horse goes down, it can make uh, other horses uh, fall over as well. And remember, there's a human being on, on top of every horse. So you've of course, yes. Potential yes. injury and death to a horse as well as the rider. So you've got to make the decision on the spot. You've got a minute or less to decide whether that horse is fit to race. Now, if there's blood coming off, you know, a scratch, it, it's easy to make the decision. But if a horse gently touches the bar and you're like, well, it sort of hit its head but didn't hit its head hard, well, what do I do? And this is where mm. the pressure is on. You're also relying on information from the jockey in case they've mm. noticed that the horse was sore. You've got to factor all those things in, make the decision, discuss it with the chief steward, who is often very receptive to the advice of the veterinarian. In fact, I find the stewards in racing to be superb because they care about welfare of the animal and the jockey. And the other rotations we do on that day as a vet is 
Um, you're at the finish line in case something goes wrong on the home stretch. You can get to the animal or the jockey straight away. Um, and likewise, um, someone's in the steward's room watching the race on the screen so that we can work out where the horse has gone down and, and, until the, the which vet should go straight out to that area based on where they are. But, but I've also, in recent times, started working as a doctor at the races. So that, that causes a bit of confusion. I think some of the jockeys... <laughs> is there a doctor in the house? Is, is there, there a is? Right? Is there a vet in the house? It's like you again. Hang on, That's what's it. going on? <laughs> I saw a jockey who, it was just very simple, but just with a headache and, and his reaction was, uh, no, no, I want to see the doctor, not the vet. And I said, oh, no, no, this is, this is the other hat today. So I enjoy, I enjoy that bit of, when there's no stress and no trauma and, uh, and there's an opportunity for a joke, that, that joke works well. Without going through any names, I could imagine the conversations at the back of the barriers, if you have to make that split second decision to scratch a horse, would be fairly robust based on, you know, the jockey or then when you get back to the mounting yard and the owners are there saying, what on earth's going on there? You know, you're spot on because on my first day ever as a vet at the barriers, uh, before the start of the race, I scratched a horse in the second or third race. And as soon as I returned to the enclosure, I had the trainer uh, basically, you know, yelling at me. I was in my young 20s and, and, and of course, there was a, a chief vet and the, the chief vet said to the trainer, just go to the steward's room and we'll discuss it there. So you're right, high emotion, frustration, mm. all the investment that the trainer and the owner and everyone else has put into this horse and I've just decided, sorry, you can't race today. It's a lot worse when it's a major race. If it's a, uh, obviously, you know, the of course, the Golden Slipper or Golden something. Slipper yes. or the Epson or the Doncaster or whatever it is in Sydney that I work with. Everest. Mm. Yeah, the Everest, yeah, absolutely. And, and this is why often we have two vets at the barriers for those big races so that there's, there's shared input, and I think that's very important and extremely helpful um, to have two, you know, experienced veterinarians making the call on the day. But coming back to my example, it wasn't a, it wasn't a big race. Um, it, was, it was just your average race. Uh, but then I went to the steward's room and I spoke and expressed my concern. I saw the horse rare. I saw it hit its head. It had lost hair on, on, on its pole, which is the top of the head. And the horse looked a bit looked a bit dopey, and I thought I'm not going to risk the welfare of the, the the jockey and the horse. And the trainer was grateful at that point. But yep, you're right. It's like being being uh, eliminated from any competition when you've invested so much. <laughs> I mean, it's hard enough to get a horse to the racetrack anyway, and then finally get them to the barriers, and then all of a sudden they're not racing. Um, I did go to the races um, around about this time last year, and in the first race at Ramwick there was the very unfortunate scene of a horse that had clearly had an issue with its leg and had to be, unfortunately, put down on the straight. Have you ever had to be in a terrible situation like that in front of tens of thousands of people? Yes, yes, I have. And, uh, you, you know, again, that description is something spot on in, in my experience. I have seen uh, a horse collapse on the straight. Now, the difficulty with the straight is the crowd can see it. It is a terrible experience for everyone involved, from the side of the jockey, um, the barrier attendants, and and the veterinarians. Uh, we don't want that situation to happen, and it happens in all walks of life. It happens. The horses are, um, you know, in the wild, and they break their leg, and they just don't survive, and they suffer immensely. Horses do not cope well with broken legs, unlike uh, human species. What we can do is we put a um, a type of netting around the animal so that the crowd can't see what we're doing. Now works very well in most of the racetrack except right in front of the grandstand 
there's people, as you can imagine, elevated on different levels of the grand yes. stand. And some people can see in. That's that's not for the majority, though. But people know what's going on. And, you know. They don't I, want to look at that anyway. I mean, uh, let's. Um... Yeah, absolutely. I've seen the crowd cry. I've seen people in the crowd cry when this is happening, um, which, which I, I mean, you know, it's tough for us all, but it, it shows that people care. They care about animals. It's, they don't want to see this happening, but it's a risk of anything we do with animals. Rest assured, you know, I tell people this often in conversation when they're critical of the races. 99% of people who are involved in the industry. They do. They do, yes. They, you know, you should see the relationship between the strapper, the person that walks the horse around on the day, who is basically feeding the horse, you know, and looking after the care of the horse at home. The relationship between strapper and, and the horse is so special. The, the strappers care for these animals as if the horse was the pet dog or their baby, um, and, and I'm not exaggerating that. So people do not want to see breakdowns. They want to see a lovely, successful day at the races, and that is the case um, 99% of the time. So put your put your other medical hat on, your hospital hat on. The work you're doing with um, with women, I'm keen I'm keen to know what you do there. How has that developed, and what sort of patients are you seeing? My specialty is what we call women's health, otherwise known as the obstetrics, which is delivering the baby, and the gynaecology, which is um, looking after, if I may use the words, female parts um, in the either the non-pregnant state or the early pregnant state up to about 20 weeks gestation. And I love women's health. I've seen women suffer in life. I've seen women treated badly by men. I've seen uh, women uh, not given a fair go in life. And I think pregnancy is a very vulnerable state. And this is where you're doing more than just medicine. Um, You're doing that extra level of care for your patient, Mm. which is very obvious. You're helping them through the tough times. Um, you're helping them when it comes to postnatal depression. Um, you're helping them when they've got cancer of any of the female um, reproductive anatomy. Um, and so you, you're working with women of all ages, young women with gynecology problems to women who are trying to fall pregnant, women who are having babies, and women in the older stages of life with you know, cervical cancer or uterine cancer or, or the like. I, I love that dimension. But as a doctor, um, I don't think anything beats the delivery of a baby. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've been mm. in the delivery room. Yeah, twice, perfect. I have twice, and it was it was the most amazing experience I've ever had in my life. It is, and most of the time, um, a delivery of a baby is uneventful in the sense of uh, there's no complications. That's that's the yes. norm where we are as doctors assisting with a lot of normality. What we're trained to do is to be very competent, though, in an emergency. Yes. And I enjoy, I enjoy both of those. I, I enjoy being there and just helping a woman to push um, and, and avoid tears um, and, to, and to help the baby come out um, as smoothly as possible. That's, that's what most of our work is. But then let's say, you know, the, the, the patient has a, a, what we call, call a postpartum hemorrhage, a terrible bleed after delivery, which, which can be, you know, fatal for a woman. And basically being the doctor that gets in early with the help of the midwife and other staff to resuscitate the patient, stop the bleeding, decide whether she needs to go straight to theatre or whether we can manage her medically with fluids and basically save her life. I have never um, uh, become sick of that part of uh, obstetrics. And that's why I love being in there. I love helping women throughout all those stages that I've just described. When things escalate to a point of real seriousness to an emergency. I'm, I'm hoping that that is quite rare. 
that 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 does not happen very often. Look, you know, it, it's rare, um, but it happens enough that uh, um, a where we become experienced in it, and b it, it is like the old Doctor ABC approach. You know, when we're taught CPR, we have yes. the same approach with with women that are in trouble during labour. Um, and the big one for us, particularly at rural North Shore, where I work at a, a tertiary hospital, is that um, you know, send for help, because. This is what I love being able to provide. I may be the only doctor at the room at the start, but before I know it, I'll have the anaesthetist in the room, the intensive care doctor in the room, um, mm. the, the emergency yeah. doctor in the room, and we get to work as a team, each doing their own role and deciding um, what is the best care and the best management for this patient at that immediate point in time. So th- the answer is yes, it's not common, um, but but – it happens enough that we become competent in making those decisions. And, and death is you know rare, but, yes. but can I just point this out? That, that, you know, the biggest killer of women about you know, 50 years ago before modern medicine was childbirth. Childbirth. Yeah, yeah. and particularly yeah. the bleed associated with it. But with modern medicine, the, the ability to take a woman to a cesarean section and to know when to do that is why we don't have the same, um, anywhere near the same degree of mortality associated with childbirth. How are the dads of Australia going these days? I mean, if I think back to uh, when I was born, I'm, I'm certain my dad probably wasn't even in the delivery room. Whereas these days, I think it's okay, get, get ready. I need a hand here. So you, you no doubt would have had some interesting experiences watching that evolve over time. It is one of the best changes to the obstetrics uh, department that we ever made, allowing dads in in general. Because this idea that women do it alone without the support of the partner was was undervalued. Now, as a male doctor, so much of my conversation is directed at the at the mother or, or you know the, the patient, but always including the father or the partner to the extent um, that they feel like they're not just on the periphery being a problem, but rather they're there with an important role. Can I tell you? I rarely cry in obstetrics. But I do cry, mm. not not when the mum's crying, but when but when the dad is crying for the delivery yes. of a child. That yes. that gets me because particularly in, in couples that either lost a child previously, have been trying for so long to conceive a child, and I think it's the overwhelming joy that finally they got there. And, um, and when I see the dads tear up, they'll, they'll get me sometimes. I'll just pretend I'm fine. But, you know, that's, that's – <laughs> yeah, who's that's, got the onions? <laughs> that's it. Who's got the onions? Um, but, you know, the, the, the bond between the mother and the partner is something that you never want to underestimate. The, 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 the dad in this particular example is so important when they're encouraging, they're understanding, they're praising, and, and I love that. But, and, but, you know, let's go through a, a few other stories. It's when the dad collapses in the, in the delivery while the mother's absolutely fine. <laughs> Toughen up. <laughs> Toughen up. It's the dad who makes the first embarrassing comment when the baby comes out saying, oh, is that what they really look like? Babies don't look nice and pretty when they come out, obviously. And, yes. da- and, the, dad, yes. and the dad is not prepared for that and makes that comment, which is so condescending naively. Mm. So, so you've got to, you've just got to dissipate that as much as possible and focus on this wonderful looking baby. And I tell every parent that their baby looks beautiful. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> so of that's course. what they need to hear, and then they can work out later in life. <laughs> so you've got the vet side of things. You've got women's health. Are there any? 
What, what other areas of medicine are there? Are you thinking of branching out into a third sector or is that it? <laughs> no. Women's health is so encompassing of all the other specialties. You know, the, um, mental health is a big part of what we do in obstetrics and gynecology. Infectious disease is a big part. Um, palliative care is a big part. So I've, an emergency, of course, when, when there's a, 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 a woman who's in emergency with a gynecological problem, the emergency doctor assesses first. Um, and then they call down the obstetrician gynecologist. So I spend a lot of time of an emergency as well, uh, working out whether this patient needs to be admitted, taken straight to surgery, and, and other things like that. And I don't see a desire, there's no desire to cross over into other specialties because I find it so fulfilling uh, with this particular specialty. So you are, Mark, uh, chairman of the selection panel, the national selection panel for the John Monash uh, Foundation Scholarship. What is involved in that role? Well, I, I've just finished that role, actually. Um, one of the other board members, uh, Paul Welling, will take over that this year. Um, and I've had my turn and loved every bit of it. But what it involves is, um, you know, chairing basically six or seven other panellists who would be uh, people distinguished in their careers, um, people who really in, enjoy watching our younger you know, generation rise to positions of leadership and, and having the authority or at least the input, having the input to try and support candidates. My job is to make sure that everyone gets to ask a question, um, that the, the candidate feels supported, um, to ask some of the tougher questions because I think as part of the, the, the Monash scholarship, in order to work out who is the best of the best when you've got so many outstanding applicants, yeah, you have to you have to hit them with some of the harder questions to see what they're like on the spot, how how they deal with impromptu questions, um, and to see what because you know what it's like for an interview. You prepare for the questions that you think you're going to get asked, and you can rehearse that over and over again. I want to see how the candidate also does with the with the question they're not prepared for. Left of left field. That's it. Left mm. of left field. Um, and then after the candidate leaves the room, the panelists will discuss their opinion um, on the candidate. And again, the job of the chair is to make sure everyone stays calm, which they generally do. There's often, uh, sorry, there is sometimes division over a particular candidate and we need to come back to discussing that candidate after. Um, but most of the time we can work out who the outstanding candidates are. And when I mean outstanding, I mean above and beyond. This, this is Australia's best. Um, and, you know, they're universally... Like the best yeah. of the best, the top gun the top of scholars. Gun. Yeah. And when you think of how many applicants we get, you know, three, 400 a year, and we have to choose 12 or 15, maximum I think we've ever gone up to is about 18 or 20, um, but that's not the case at the moment. Um, it's a tough job. And, you know, you, you look at their academic transcript, you look at their leadership skills, you look at their, their, either their sport or debating or musical background, um, these are people that have done extremely well and we have to choose between, you know, a lawyer, a, a doctor, a, a, a poet, an a artist. philosopher, an artist, a musician, and how do you compare? And that's where it becomes really tough. Well, I'm glad it's you. Mark, I could talk to you all day, but we're out of time. It's been a real pleasure having the opportunity to talk with you and we wish you uh, all the very best for the years ahead. Thanks for coming on to the show. Oh, thanks so much. It's been great to chat as well. All, all the best.